This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book under the cover entitled of Christian Fundamentals. <coughs> this special series at the moment has to do with the inspiration of scripture and the subject before us is the Acts of the Apostles examined in order to demonstrate the trustworthiness of the Word of God. It is our custom of this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and those of you who are listening to this tape recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little while while we read together Acts, the 11th chapter, starting at verse 27 and reading the whole of chapter 12. I suppose if we were to be asked by anybody, what year, in what year was Christ born? We should say in the year one, of course. But then I'll be thinking that if you could have called to a shop, you have got a calendar, and it would have said the year one. You know, there was a man who dug up a coin in his garden, and he knew it was a, a very ancient one, because it had got the date on it, B.C. 50. I won't explain that if you don't see it. You see, at the time when our Saviour was born, the calendar that the Roman power used was one that was associated with all their emperors' lives and accessions and deaths. And the Egyptians had another one that went back in a very different order. The Persians had yet another, and the Mesopotamian people had yet further, and if you went as far as India and China, they would have been different. The year one was never thought about as a beginning date for even Europeans until the 6th century, 500 and more years after the birth of Christ. And we owe it to an abbot of a church, his name was Dionysius, who first began to compute. Now you think of the problem of adding this and taking away that and subtracting something else and not knowing whether you start in the middle of a year or the beginning of a year or the end of a year. No wonder. There's still a doubt as to just exactly what was the precise date. Now nobody's objecting and saying, oh, well, and that, that puts it all in the air. No, it's that we do not know how to correlate the first year of the Christian era with all the other dates that were going on round them. We are not bothered about that. I'm only mentioning that we mustn't think uh, that the whole world, just at that stroke of the clock, suddenly agreed to call it year one. They didn't think of calling it year one when Christ was crucified. They didn't think of calling it year 29 or year 31 when Pentecost came. It was a long time after that before this peculiar religion which had started so small in Palestine began to influence the world and so influence their dating. Today, of course, we accept it and uh, I doubt whether there's anybody, however much he knows of chronology, would stand up in a court of law and on oath declare that he knew that the date of this present year was, well, 1956, 1957, 58, 59. Now that's not upsetting anything, it's only saying we're a long way away and we haven't all the necessary means to be sure. What we are glad about is, from God's point of view, that when the fullness of time was come, whatever date it was on the Roman calendar, God sent forth his Son. That's good enough for us. But now, supposing we want to 
get a little idea of the way in which this book of the Acts, which we have in front of us, fits on the calendar of the world. Is there any way in which we can do it? Well, there is. There is one date which is practically certain. And that date has to do with the death of Herod that we read just now in the twelfth chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. The Acts of the Apostles is covered by the reigns of Tiberius, Gaius, Claudius, and Nero. But we don't quite know where it begins, and we don't quite know where it ends. But supposing we could find some date in the middle of the book, some date about which everyone is certain, and then we could take the Acts of the Apostles, which is all rolled up like this, and we put a pin through that date, into the corresponding date of the world outside, then we can roll the axe along like that, and wherever it starts, it starts, and wherever it ends, it ends. Now you'll see on this chart that I've started it at the year 31. You see, I'm out of step with all the rest. Nearly everybody would now say, oh no, 29. But I'm not bothering about that. I say, look, I've got my pin through that one there where it says 44, you see. Well, now I've got to roll the axe back, and when it stops, it stops. That's all I'm concerned about. And when it goes there, it stops. And I think you will too. It's not interfering in any sense with doctrine or truth. It's just admitting we haven't got all the material necessary to be absolutely certain the beginning or the end. Now, what about this date which I say is practically certain? Well, we read, and when I say we read, I'm quoting from Josephus. And he tells us that this Herod died in the seventh year of his reign and the fifty-fourth year of his life. Well, that's something specific. He was fifty-four when he died and it was in the seventh year of his reign. Well, you say, well, when did he reign? Well, Josephus again tells us that he died soon after the completion of his third year as king over all Judea. So we've got two points. Now let us see how far we can use these two items. Secular history supplies this. It says not many days after the accession of Gaius, not many days after the accession of Gaius, Herod began his reign. Well, and you say, dear, oh dear, when was the accession of Gaius? Well, that's dated. March the 16th, A.D. 37, or whatever was the equivalent. Now, if we add 37 to 7, can you add that up? 44, isn't it? All right. Well, I put 44 there, you see, where it says Herod, 44. Well, now, let's start all over again. When did Herod begin to reign over all Judea? He didn't reign over all Judea at first. After a period, he did. Gaius was murdered on January the 24th, A.D. 41. And on the accession of Claudius, again quoting Josephus, Herod was made king of Judea and Samaria. Well now, if you add 41 to 3, we get again the date, A.D. 44. Because you see, we've moved on at the death of Gaius. 41 Three more years, 44. And then one further statement. Josephus makes a casual remark to the effect that Herod died during a festival held in the honour of Claudius for his safety. 
a public festival because Claudius had done something and apparently been brought safely through. Well, Claudius came to England in that year. And in that year, the decisive battle was fought and this country became a part of the Roman Empire. So much so that later on he had a son and he called his name Britannicus. And the Apostle Paul heard the name Britannicus when he was in Rome and most likely met with those early Britons who were brought back in the conqueror's uh, train. It's almost, it's almost possible that the first Christians he met was in the house of the British princess who was brought back a prisoner. But that's by the way. Now, Claudius returned to Rome from Britain in January AD 44. Well, now you've got three points, you see. They all focus on the one thing. The two sections of Herod's reign both lead to the same 44, and this casual reference enforces it. So I think that <coughs> you'll discover that nearly everyone who is associated with the, the study of chronology has no doubt that that date is accepted, AD 44. Well now, we go back as far as we can with a computation of the story in the Acts, and we go on as far as we can. Well now let's see if we can find any way of, of getting a date at the end of the book. Now the last chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, we find Paul at Rome, and he's a prisoner. But you discover he's in his own hired house and he received all that came unto him. It was galling to be a prisoner but he was a very special prisoner because you see he had done nothing that was contrary to the law of Rome. This was only a petty fogging uh, sort of bother with a Jewish people and the Roman governor said oh it's a matter of your law you see to it. This man was a Roman citizen. Paul was. And they all agreed in those in authority that if he hadn't appealed unto Caesar, he would have set free for he'd done nothing worthy of stripes or bonds. But of course there was an overruling. God intended he should go to Rome. He appealed unto Caesar and he went. So he was treated with a certain amount of consideration. He was never without a Roman guard and there's every possibility he was under what was called military custody and he would always have a chain to his wrist and to the one who was guarding him. We can only hope that as he dictated some of his epistles, as we believe he did in prison, that some of the Roman guards were converted on the spot by the wonder of his teaching. Because you know that his name was circulated throughout the Praetorium, as Philippian says, and that many were brought to a knowledge of, his, of Christ by his very bonds and the way in which he endured. Well now, The point, the point that I'm trying to get is there's a date when it doesn't seem possible that the Acts of the Apostles could go further. In AD 64, the great fire broke out in Rome. Now, whether Nero was responsible for it or not, we do not know. We know he's supposed to have played the fiddle while Rome burned. And, of course, he's a very useful person in crossword puzzles. But we want something a bit deeper than that. But when you get to know this, that the Christians who had been tolerated up till then, you read the Acts of the Apostles right through every chapter, the Roman power was protecting the Christians. The persecution 
persecuting element was the Jewish people. The Romans rescued Paul from the riot. They weren't not going to persecute Paul, they were rescuing him from his own fellow countrymen. But when Rome burned, a change took place. The Christians were blamed, whether by Nero or others we may not know. But you know, they, terrible things are written concerning that period. They were covered with pitch and they were turned into living torches. They were thrown to wild animals and the de- dreadful things happened. And it was not humanly possible that the ringleader of that belief should be happily in prison, looked after like a gentleman, and at the same time his fellow Christians suffering outside. So I think you'll agree with me that you couldn't get beyond AD 64 for the end of the Acts of the Apostles. When Paul was liberated, was able to go round the churches, wrote his last epistle, was apprehended, taken back, and never came out again except to execution. So now we've got two dates. AD 44 for Acts 12, and at least no further than AD 64 for Acts 28. It might be AD 63, maybe AD 62, we don't know, it doesn't matter. But the point is, there's a sort of line that we say we can't go further. Well, that gives us something to work upon. Well, now, supposing we take it a little further. You'll have to put up with these names of people and dates, because if I try to prove every one of these points, we shall be here to AD, whatever it might turn out to be, and that would be rather bad. The apostle was arrested at Jerusalem. I'm summing up the teaching of the Acts. Sent to Caesarea imprisoned by Felix and detained by him for two years. You remember it says that he kept him two years bound, partly hoping that his friends would subscribe money to set him free. Two years. Now, Felix was succeeded by Festus. That's the record of the Acts of the Apostles. That's the record of of the secular history. And Felix heard Paul's defence, as also did King Agrippa. Now, Felix was procurator of Judea in AD 52 or 53. Two references in Josephus for that. AD 52 or 53. Eusebius, that's a writer of early days, he says AD 51. Well now, we've got those dates that are already suggested. 51, 52, 53. Whichever of these dates may be the true one, we know from Acts 24 verse 10. Now I think it wouldn't be a bad plan if we just let the book speak as well. Acts 24 verse 10. Then Paul, after the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation. Now how many, many years may be, we are not sure. But it was a period. Whichever of these dates may be the true one, we know from Acts 24.10 that Felix had been many years. So that we're within a little, you see, 51, 52, 53, round about that period. When Tertullius, who uh, opened the... um, Is that uh, a little bit further on? Yes, Tertullius in this chapter 24, when he opened his speech, he accused Paul, he introduced a certain compliment. He said, 
um, verse 2. And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence, and so on, you see. As though this were an outstanding feature of the administration of Felix. This also had some bearing upon the nature of the charge brought against Paul. When Paul was delivered from the Jewish mob by Roman soldiers, it was evident from the words of the chief captain that he had been mistaken for the false prophet, an Egyptian, who had led 30,000 fanatical Jews to the Mount of Olives to see Jerusalem fall. Felix rooted them, but the Egyptian had escaped. So when Paul was taken and he was questioned, he said, Art thou not that Egyptian? You remember the Roman guard asked him. And another link is that the word murderers in chapter 21, 38... In this very same verse, 21.38, Art not thou that Egyptian, which before these days made us an uproar, and ledest out into the wilderness four thousand men that were murderers? That's what they rather suspected, that Paul was that man. Now that word murderer is rather a peculiar word. Sicarion. S-I-K-A-R. And we discover from Josephus that a sect of these people who were called the Sicari, murdered in broad daylight, arose during the reign of Nero. Now Nero began his reign in October the 13th, AD 54. So here are focusing again. We said it might be 51, 52, 53, 54. It comes again, you see, near enough for us, for our purpose. Now the great quietness referred to by Tertullus ensued upon the capture of Eliezer and upon his being sent to Rome after twenty years' defiance and rebellion, and also upon the route of the false prophet, the Egyptian, for whom Paul was mistaken by Claudius Lysias, the chief captain. The numerous events that go to make up the administration of Felix fully account for three years. These, added to the earliest possible date of the Sicarii, would bring us to A.D. 57. Paul arrived sometime after this date, before the Egyptian had been rooted before these days. So you see, although it's rather intricate and it may not be very interesting to you, the more you go into this, this book's keeping pace with fact all the way through. It never hesitates. It never makes one side step. It never has to be corrected. They used to say nobody had ever heard of Asiarchs and Polytarchs. Two different kind of magistrates until you go to the British Museum and I've stood and read the two names that have now been discovered. Nobody knew, except the uh, inspired Luke who put it down and left it for nearly 2,000 years afterwards to vindicate his authority. Now then, we'll go further. Another clue is given by a note of Josephus that a dispute arose between Festus and the Jews and that the Jewish um, deputation was considerably helped by the influence of Nero's wife, Poppea, who was married to him in AD 62. So now we've got another date. He was married to this Jewess in AD 62, and she considerably helped in the dispute with Festus. So we're now bringing Festus back to Rome to give an account of himself after 
the other dates given. And Josephus tells us that, um, oh, first of all, the scripture tells us that um, he was called back to Rome and he was going to be accused by the Jews and willing to show the Jews a pleasure, he left Paul bound. 20, Acts 24, verse 27. 24-27. But after two years, Porcius Festus came into Felix's room, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. Josephus tells us that Felix was saved from the due punishment of his deeds by the intervention of his brother Pallas. P-A-L-L-A-S. Now, Pallas died in A.D. 62. Therefore, Felix must have been recalled not later than A.D. 61 in order to arrive in Rome in time for his brother's influence to be made of avail. And in AD 62, Nero married a Jewish so she could influence the trial when it took place. Well, I don't think I'll go into any further these complications, but I think it's worth giving them once, don't you, to say here's a book written all that time ago that stands up to it like that. And if you go into most intricate details, you'll discover that even though no proof is given, Luke threads his way without the slightest hesitation, he calls one a proconsul, he calls another one a deputy, and the drops and changes as to whether he represented the government or whether he represented the emperor, all those made a difference, but he never makes one mistake. And I think we are thankful for that testimony. So let me summarise just what we've got that Acts, the first and second chapter, is anywhere around about A.D. 29 to 31. I've only put 31 because I've stretched it back, you see. I haven't bothered where it's going to land me. I don't bother. I simply say, there are the years accounted for. If it's 31, well, I'll wait till the day of judgment and find out whether the man who said 29 was more correct than I. Nobody can dispute it, you see. 31. Then A.D. 44 covers the period up to round about Acts 12, the date of Herod's death. And then we have Paul's arrest at Jerusalem, anywhere between AD 56 to 58. We have Acts 28, the date of Paul's arrival at Rome, AD 59 to 61. And then Acts 28 itself, the conclusion, because it says he spent two whole years there, at the finish, two years, that is AD 61 or AD 63, which brings us right to the critical year AD 64 and it couldn't go further. Well, I think that's pretty obvious that we're on the track, don't you? Well, now you say you've been reading that all this time. Well, I have friends. This is taken from the Apostle of the Reconciliation, a book that I wrote myself, so I'm, I suppose I'm permitted to read it rather than merely quote it from memory, but for the moment it's out of print. We're very much hoping that presently Mr. Canning will come to the conclusion that it'll have to be printed until it is. It'll have to be just left on the shelves. We have, I think we've got one copy that's out on loan at the present moment. Well now, so far, what have we got? We've got the, the um, Acts of the Apostles pegged down in AD 44, unrolled, getting to the first year, unrolled, getting to the last year. AD 64, Nero. AD 65, finish. 
the Apostle Paul executed and he says, I have finished. Now when you, uh, you notice where I've got those little brackets with the figure seven, that there's a sort of, uh, you've seen a string of a violin, haven't you, with its nodes, how it seems to go like that. Well, here we have them, see? At a seventh year, it comes right to a point, and it tells you something. Then it expands again to a seventh year. Let's see that, shall we, next. The first passage is in chapter 9, 31. Chapter 9, 31. After uh, the first nine chapters of the Acts have been written, it comes to a little conclusion and says, Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. That's a sort of little summary. Now you move on another seven years, and you come to chapter 12, 24. Chapter 12 is what we read just now, AD 44. In contrast to the vain glory of Herod, but, but, the word of God grew and multiplied. See the same word, multiplied again. See? The next passage is in chapter 16, verse 5. Now Paul has been round his journey to Galatia, and here we have that he's taken the decrees that were decreed according to Acts 15. And in chapter 16, verse 5, and so were the churches established in the faith and increased, doesn't say multiplied, but increased in number daily. We take another seven years and we find in chapter 22 that the apostle is arrested. Chapter 22. He stands there and gives his testimony. And finally, I quote from the second epistle of Paul, chapter 4, where he says, I have finished my course seven years afterwards. And so that brings us to the end of Paul's witness. If that took place in, in 65, the year 65, then you've got one, two, three, four, five more years, and Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple burned, and the people of Israel scattered, and the whole of their, as it were, period of low army, not my people, taking place. Now we go back again on the story, and look at one or two other features. Uh, just in passing, that little piece at the side of the chart, which refers to 2 Samuel chapter 5. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, I think we'd better look at it for ourselves, which is referring to the reign of David. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 5. It says in verse 4, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned 30 and three years over all Israel and Judah. When he reigned over all Israel and Judah, it was a period of 33 years. You say, what happened to the half? Well, that's one of the things you've got to watch in the chronology of these kings. They take it from one and give it to the other and they never sort of spoil a year. Thirty-three years. Well, you see, I've had a look at that and I thought, well, here we have the reign of Samuel 
uh, of David, 33 years. You have the same number of years estimated for the life of Christ in the Gospels, his ministry. And then the Acts of the Apostles occupies another 33 years, which is a sort of suggestive balance. But I wouldn't build upon it because these things are not there just stated. They are things that you look at, wonder, and you can mention them uh, without committing yourself. Now, would you look, first of all, at the um, little green patches? Those green patches simply say, visits to Jerusalem. And it may be worthwhile just noticing where they come in. The first visit is recorded in chapter 9, 26 to 30. This is the Acts of the Apostles again. Chapter 9, uh, what was it? 26 to 30. This is after the conversion of Saul. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. We didn't quite understand. They weren't very happy about that. He was a persecutor, a man who was hailing to the prison, and then suddenly he wants to join them. And we owe it to Barnabas, who stood between and introduced him and guaranteed him. Barnabas spoke for him. As you'll see here in verse 27, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. That's the first visit to Jerusalem. The second visit is given us in chapter 11, verse 29. Chapter 11, verse 29. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. And in chapter 12, 25, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. You see my point. It says that they, uh, they were going to stay into Jerusalem, and then it says in the next chapter that they came back from Jerusalem. Well, they must have gone there, mustn't they, friends? You don't need to be a logician to see that. That's the next visit. Then the third visit is given us in the 15th chapter, where there was that great controversy as to how far the Gentile was going to be accepted without being put under the yoke of the law of Moses and the rite of circumcision. Acts 15.2 When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem. And when, verse 4, when they were come to Jerusalem and were received of the church, then the council met. The fourth visit is given us in the 18th chapter, 21 and 22. 18th chapter, 21 and 22. Here Paul is at Ephesus. They decided to tarry, but he said, I must be, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem. And then the fifth visit is when he was taken prisoner 
and taken by ship. That's found in 21 to chapter 23, but I'm not stopping to read it because our time is fast moving. Now with regard to some of the other things. Where do the epistles fit in? That's an important thought because uh, the allusions in the epistles to the different places are keys. The, the biggest trouble was the epistle to the Galatians. And if you know the history of commentaries on it, that in early days, uh, commentators were very much concerned about the question of where was Galatia. Now I've got two maps here, I think they're small, they're big enough for you to just see. Can you see that that is Asia Minor in the back row? Could you see it? And a little spot there where my finger is, is the kingdom of Galatia. Now that's all that we knew about Galatia a hundred years ago. But the trouble was that although we are told that Paul visited these churches in Galatia, not a single place in that kingdom of Galatia is found in the Acts of the Apostles. That puzzled people. Well, now it was discovered by archaeological research that the Romans had ignored the limitations of the little kingdom of Galatia up there and they turned the whole of that beast into the province of Galatia. And the province of Galatia is found to contain the places Antioch, Iconium, Lystra and Derbe. So when Paul visited Antioch and Lystra in Acts 13 and 14, he was going to Galatia, the very first of his mission. And the first epistle that, as far as I can see, that he wrote was that epistle to the Galatians which steps out of the arena. Here's a man starting his ministry. He says, Paul an apostle, not a man, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ. He had to do that. He had to vindicate his position and he does it thoroughly. So we have Galatians. Early in the Acts of the Apostles, Paul went to the church of Thessalonica uh, that you will find uh, in the, um, in the, is it the 17th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles? Yes. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was the synagogue of the Jews. And as his manner was, he went in unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging, and so on. And he writes to those Thessalonians, and he says, You receive the word, not as, not as the word of men, but the word of God. And he said, The Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians. Well, the Thessalonians must have been pretty noble then. But the Bereans beat them because they not only received the word, like the Thessalonians did, but they searched to see if it was so. So the Thessalonians were very much associated with the ministry of Paul, emphasizing the scriptures as we see there. And then, I've placed Hebrews. I don't know, it could be placed almost anywhere. I think if I were redesigning this chart, I would have put it next to Galatians. And I'll tell you why. Dr. Fertle, when he was going through one of the important manuscripts of the New Testament, discovered that over each one of Paul's epistles was a letter of the alphabet. And although Hebrews was a long way away from Galatians, it was given the next letter the next letter. Somebody has put the next letter. Now you think, Hebrews has no introduction. Doesn't say who wrote it. Doesn't say Paul an apostle. But it speaks about the Jewish position. He demolishes the idea of trusting in priesthood and sacrifice 
But here's a wonderful thing. He never touched the question of circumcision. Why? Well, it was the very heart of the matter. Why didn't he touch it? He'd already touched it completely in the epistle to the Galatians. And in the epistle to the Galatians, he's got a figure. Jerusalem above and Jerusalem beneath. Below. In Hebrews, he's got Jerusalem above, just the same. He says to the Galatians, are you made perfect by your works? He says to the Hebrews, aren't you going on to perfection? By the time you put down all the parallels you can discover between Galatians and Hebrews, you become conscious that Hebrews was an epistle sent with a covering letter to the Galatians and he addressed the Gentiles in Galatians and the Jews in Hebrews and they're, they're all one together. That may be challenged, of course, but it's worth thinking over. And then we come to the first and second Corinthians, further down the, the length, finishing with Romans, the last epistle that Paul wrote while he was a free man. After that, he was apprehended, he spent two years in prison at Caesarea, he spent another two years in prison at Rome, and then he wrote, you remember Philemon, he wrote and says, I'm expecting to be liberated, I'm looking to you to provide me a lodging, and we discover that he had a plan according to the statement in Romans the 15th chapter, that he would go to Rome, and he would ask them to assist him to go on his way to Spain. And there is the tradition that he reached Spain. Well, he couldn't have reached Spain if he was never liberated from the Roman prison, and it all fits in that he was again apprehended, but this time, this time, he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, I suffer as a malefactor. I'm not suffering now as someone who has upset the apple cart of a few Jews and the Romans are looking at me and saying, oh, that doesn't matter much. He says, oh no, oh no, I'm in a different category now. This is Finnish. There's no, there's no liberation now. But, he said, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth a crown. So Nero didn't stop him. Nobody stopped him. The only one who stopped him was the Lord he served. And when he finished his course, he said, I'm glad, I'm glad to depart and be with Christ, which is infinitely better than staying here. And so we bring it to a conclusion. We've got just down there the symbol of the fire that destroyed Jerusalem. And when I speak of Acts 28 as a frontier, it is not a thin line that you cannot see. Most frontiers have a little strip of no man's land between them, some a quarter of a mile, some a bit further. Well, when I get to Acts 28 on one side of the barrier, and when I get to Acts, Acts, when I get to the AD 70 on the other side. And there we have the, the neutral period after the Apostle Paul had reached the end of his course. Israel scattered, Jerusalem destroyed, the present parenthetical dispensation connects. Well now, I hope that it's been worth the opportunity we've taken this evening of going over some of these things which may be rather dry, but always have only helped us to say, what a book! What a book that will stand this investigation! Isn't it good that we are able to demonstrate to those who have no sort of belief or regard to this book that come down from the high platform of spiritual apprehension which we can't give anybody, say no, come down to the level of everyday ordinary geography, everyday history, everyday archaeology, and put this book to the test. And every time you test it, it rings true. And in many cases, 
It says something which nobody else ever knew for hundreds of years afterwards. It's like I was saying just before the meeting, in another connection, any person, however ignorant, who had the Bible, knew that there was a man in the old days whose name was Belshazzar. But all the clever people, because they were clever, they said, well, we've never found his name in any list of any kings of Babylon, therefore the Bible's untrue. So poor old granny in a little country village, she knew Belshazzar was true, and all the clever ones said he wasn't. But today you can go in the British Museum and you can read the prayer that was inscribed on a cylinder that was buried at the foot of the pillar in a temple where Nabonidus prays for Belshazzar, son of the king, that he may be granted length of days and kept from sin. Poor Belshazzar. He never lived long and he wasn't kept from sin. But the point is that Belshazzar was a reality. And all the clever ones have had to climb down and accept it. And that will take place until the end of time. They've just got an exhibition at the British Museum of further evidences that have been now dug out of Palestine. And if you've got an opportunity to go before they're gathered up and taken away, you'll find them worth a visit. I leave it again with you and pray that those of you who are listening to this, whether in this chapel or further afield, who have to stand up before men, stand up before them with a consciousness behind you that you have a trustworthy record, a book about which you need have no shame, but rather stand, as it says, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labour is not in vain in the Lord.